I'm Paul. And if that sounds like a different voice, it is. As promised last week, Dave is off in the USA. He's flying between uh, New York and Boston, I think, as we record this. And I've invited Paul Schoons from New Zealand to join us on the show today. Hello, Paul. Hello, Rob. How are you? I'm not too bad at all. We've both watched this new episode, Pyramid at the End of the World, and uh, I think we're both eager to get chatting about it. Indeed. All right. As is customary, we start off these episodes with our Word of the Week Paul, I'll give you the chance to give me your word of the week first. <laughs> My word, Rob, is a reservation. Reservation. Ooh, that could be taken a few ways. I like that. My word of the week, uh, which equally could be taken a few ways, is team. Interesting. Okay. Let's rip into it. Pyramid at the End of the World, written by Peter Harness and Stephen Moffat. Gosh, there's a lot to unpack here. I'm going to start off by saying biohazards are bloody scary. <laughs> <laughs> Something that Doctor Who's always done quite well, I think, biohazards. You know, it's one of those very scary things. Absolutely. I think, you know, I think war is a very inefficient way to end the human race. I think biohazards are just immaculate in the way they would end us. So the the threat behind this, I mean, obviously there's these monks running about and they're quite scary in their own right. But this threat of the biohazard that underpins this whole episode, I found really realistic and and actually really quite scary compared to maybe some of the plots we get in Doctor Who. Yeah, and it was a very human side to the plot too because everyone can relate to someone who's having a bad day at work, right? Yes. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some things go like, like like you know, it's a chain of circumstance. Things go wrong for you, you know, the the the, the woman's glasses are broken, the guy's got a bad hangover, you know. So we've all been there. I mean, you know, we all we all know people like this. We 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 may not be um, biochemists ourselves, but we uh, we can certainly appreciate where they're coming from. It's a very sort of human plotline, I think. Absolutely, and and just while we touch on those two scientists, I really like the fact they cast someone here with dwarfism, but it wasn't part of the plot. I mean, I think back to the eighties and JNT. You know, oh, we've got to have roles for people with disabilities. They cast Nabil Shaban as Sil, but they make him a monster. Um, I think here it's, <laughs> it's much better. They cast this actress with dwarfism, but it's not part of the plot. It's not made fun of. It's not part of anything. She's just a, a human in the story. I'm intrigued of the casting process of that. I totally agree with you there, but I'm intrigued. I wonder if it was written for for a short person like that or whether it was just, oh, we just like this actress. Well, we'll just cast her. I mean, it'd be great if it's the latter, really. You know, it's just just it's just the best person for the role, really. Yeah, I would like to think the latter. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. But of course, tied to this uh, plot with the biohazard are the monks. We can't get away from talking about them. The concept that a surrender from the human race has to come from a position of love. I found that quite fascinating. How did, how did you feel about that one? Difficult. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I, I had, I had a trouble getting a handle on that side of the plot, to be honest. I, the, uh, you know, this whole thing, the whole concept of like, um, it has to be done for the right reasons. It can't be done out of sort of, um, uh, fear or, or what was the other thing? It was, um, Strategy. Strategy, yeah. Yeah. That, that I, I couldn't really get a grasp on that, and I wondered if that's something yet to be revealed, or the explanation for it, where it's just not. Well, what was your take on it? Towards the end, when Bill makes the surrender, I thought, oh, okay, it's Bill's love for the Doctor. Mm. And, and I was actually quite touched by that, and we'll probably talk about that a bit more later as well. I was really touched by that, but then it seemed that that was only half of it, or maybe that wasn't quite it. It had to be love for them, that's the way I took it. And I thought, oh, that's weird. So why are you making yourselves look so damn ugly? Because it seems they have a choice in how they appear to us. 
but they've taken on this sort of rotting bodies look, which might lead us into discussion of what people are saying online. Are these meant to be Cybermen without the armor? Mm, I've seen that. I've seen that that as well. Yeah, I'm not quite sure. I mean, especially since we see the the Mondasian Cybermen in the trailer and they've got ordinary human hands, whereas the monks don't. That kind of makes me think that maybe that's a misdirection there. Exactly. I, I could and be wrong. I've thought about the hands too. They they do seem to be wearing sort of rubber kitchen gloves. Um, <laughs> but you can, and they're pink coloured rubber kitchen gloves, right. but you can see underneath, they're not those talons that these monks That's have. Right. They also yeah. have nose bumps and these, these monks seem to have the nose sort of rotted away. So I'm not sure, sure. how they'd have the nose bump. So yeah. I'm not on board with that, but I did notice when they were out uh, outside the pyramid, they had just um, landed that bomber. They all turned in unison, almost like New Who Cybermen do, like the more robotic Cybermen. And I thought, are they really trying to push this concept? Because, again, I don't think it is the case that they are Cybermen, but, oh, I think they're trying to sell it. Or do they just have the same choreographer? (laughs) (laughs) It could be. It could be. So, yeah. So, look, this this position is surrendering from position of love was fascinating. Um where does it all go in the next episode, though? That That's the question. Uh, this is the midpoint in the story. Uh, very rare to have a three-parter. And I'm I'm quite intrigued by this plot, I've got to say. I was I was kind of worried when I saw Peter Harness was involved. I thought, oh, no, is it another kill the moon moment? Will things dip as they could do? But mm. on the whole, I was pretty, pretty damn happy with the plot. It's interesting that you, you bring up kill the moon. I, I was far more reminded of his Zygon story. Oh well, of course, but his Zygon story was good. Well, yeah, but but not not just the setting, which obviously they return to the same fictitious country, but also this whole thing about standing on the brink of war and mm. and, and 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 choosing to take a step back from it. I kind of felt like they were revisiting the same sort of ideas. Yeah, yeah. Look, I got that feeling as well, um, which isn't uncommon in the Moffat era because Moffat does it a lot himself. He sort of has an idea, does a story on it, then comes back to it later and thinks you know what, I'm going to take that idea and have another crack at it. I'm going to finesse that, maybe. And it's almost like that's what Harness has done with his own story here, perhaps. Yeah, it's not necessarily a criticism on my part, because I don't... I mean, I know a lot of people say, oh, this this um, series has a lot of the same concepts coming up episode after episode, you know, technology got run amok and that sort of thing. To me, I see those as quite valid riffs on a theme, you know, that, that that's almost like if you've got a concept album in each you know, each song is, 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 is building on that idea. It, to me, I don't have a problem with it, revisiting the ideas. It's just whether it does something new and original, surprisingly, but that's the only thing I'm looking for. Indeed. Was it not Dominic Glynn who put out variations on a theme in the 80s? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> go, go grab it, people. It's a, it's a good little CD. That was the square one, wasn't it? I think so, yeah. Yeah, you got to have a very <laughs> special CD player to play that one. Anyway, <laughs> I'm digressing. Um, <laughs> just in terms of the general plot, too, I was I was quite bemused the way they kept referring to it as a 5,000-year-old pyramid. It wasn't just a pyramid, you know? It wasn't good enough to just say a pyramid. They kept, they kept saying 5,000 years old. It bugged me. It bugged the hell out of me. It's in my notes here, underlined. <laughs> um, because how do you make that leap of assumption when it wasn't there yesterday? Yeah. I mean, how do you how do you arrive at the age of an object instantly just by looking at it? Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. No, I think they're just trying to convey that it was old. But I, I think we all get the idea that a pyramid is old. Yeah, but they're kind of just predicating it as a central mystery that you know, they're almost like this was um, the the line that perhaps Stephen Moffat gave gave Peter Harness was like, "We're going to dump a president a, a a pyramid that wasn't there yesterday, and it's five thousand years old. Go!" You know, that was like a sort of brief for the episode. So that's kind of the central hook 
But to have the central hook predicated on something that doesn't actually quite, when you think about it, make much sense, mm. because, hey, the pyramid sprung out overnight. That's, that's fairly surprising. But what's to say it's not a modern replica? Exactly. And why have they chosen to make it look old? Because pyramids as we know them today, people out there, I'm getting into my history geek mode here, don't actually look like they would have back in the day. They actually used to have like a covering on them. You know, the, the stony blocks things we see today, they, they were much grander. They were much nicer than that back in the day. You are absolutely right. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, if they have recreated it, they have recreated it with ageing. Yeah. yeah, I felt like that 5,000-year thing could have could have paid off if there was a little bit of dialogue just to sort of explain why they'd reached that conclusion. But without that there, it just it jarred for me. I don't know. Maybe. Well, it, it, it jarred for me the first time. I thought, oh, why would you describe it that way? But then it really jarred for me. I think Bill was running along saying, yeah. it's a 5,000-year-old pyramid. It's like, Bill, how do you know this? She's so confident about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, look, maybe she's been doing history at uni as well as uh, whatever else she's doing. I don't know. Isn't it physics she's doing? Yes, that's it. Which, which means that she, which, which kind of the other thing, well, she looks quite blank when, when, when the doctor's talking about the doomsday clock. I mean, surely if she's doing physics, they should be aware of that. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I was also curious as to how the uh, the monks could control people's analog watches, like the digital watches and, you know, the digital things on your phone, I could understand. But how were they making the analog watches turn back? Anyway. Oh, look, oh, look, Rob, this is, this is the other big thing I've got underlined in my notes. Yes. <laughs> You're obviously reading my notes for me. Yeah. Ooh, spooky. <laughs> I mean... Uh... I don't know. Yeah, it really bugged me that. And, and it, it's something that bugged me about a previous episode of the new series, too. The 11th hour does the same thing where they manipulate all the clocks around the world. Doesn't make any sense because they, they show all different clocks. It's okay if it's, they're all digital clocks all connected to the internet. That can kind of make sense because if you take control of the internet and you reset everyone's clocks, fine, I can buy that. Yes. But when the guy's looking at his analog watch, it's kind of like, yeah, really? Yeah, it is a stretch. But of course, there's people out there who'll be writing in saying, guys, it's a show about time travel and a man in a box, and you're worried about that, but... Ah. The, way you, the way you can hand wave that, thinking about this a bit further, is that the monks are controlling things to a certain extent, right? Because, I mean, they, they also take control of the bomber aircraft and the submarine. True. So, so they have, they're already, without having had consent, and this may be another issue with the plot, they're already having an influence on the world. They're already doing things that they want to do. So in theory, they could be manipulating all the clocks, maybe. But then, but then at the end of the episode, that kind of theory gets knocked down because, because they get really surprised when the clock starts to run backwards. The monks actually sort of turn in surprise, and they're, they're, they totally do not anticipate that happening. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, Who, who's controlling the clock? <laughs> <laughs> like, like, you, like you said before, we're seeing the, and I liken it to an old old uh, classic six-parter, we're seeing the middle two parts here, yeah. you know, it's like the, the episode um, the three and four, rather, of a six-parter, that, that we're kind of going, well, we haven't seen the final two parts, so, but we're, we're making all these assumptions. And some of these things that we're, 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 we're complaining about or, or at least discussing, it might be paid off next next week. I hope so. I really do. We mentioned Bill a little um, in what we were talking about there, so let, let's talk about Bill a bit more directly. Um, to me, she felt her most companion-like yet in the series, in this episode. It feels like she's into the swing of things now, and it was just really flowing. I just felt that she was a, a proper companion here. Not that she hasn't been in past weeks, but it just felt pretty pretty solid here. 
feels like she's passed the audition, right? Yes, exactly what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's she's kind of in the flow. She's she's confident and she's interacting um, uh, casually with with both Nadol and the Doctor in a way we haven't really seen before. She's part of the team. Yeah, I would say. Yeah. Now we haven't obviously had you on these review episodes. Your opinion of Bill in general? Are you enjoying the character? I am. I'm. I'm. I'm kind of nervous about where we're going with it because, I mean. Uh, past form is that often companions turn out to be something majorly important that they weren't to start with and I'd very much hoping that that doesn't be the case with not with with Bill that she stays as as we see her now and she doesn't turn out to be I saw on, on Twitter someone saying she's the reincarnation of Susan or something, and I kind of go, no, 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 no. <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? I I, 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 I do. don't want her to be I don't want her to be Donna or Clara. Or, or even Rose, do you know, because they, or even Martha, you know, they all became this really, really important, dramatically saving the human race sort of type person. It's kind of like, cannot Bill just be like an ordinary person for once? I, I look, I completely agree with you. People are saying it's Susan for sure, or it's one of the other incarnations of the master, perhaps, <laughs> or it's, or of course, it's the Rani, um, yeah. you know, all of these theories. And I, I, I guess I want her to be an outsider looking in rather than being someone who's, who's sort of already interwoven into the, into the continuity. Yeah. Now look, it's pretty, it's rumored pretty heavily that she may be a one series only companion. Do you think Moffat will be able to resist only having her there for one series and not giving her a big ending, which might involve becoming something superhuman or something amazing before she finishes? You know, would he let someone go out after one series with a with a whimper, so to speak? I don't know. I I suspect it might come. He's probably had discussions with 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 the incoming production team as to whether they wanted to keep her on. I, I, I really don't know. I mean, there, there's two parts to it, isn't there? There's, dr- there's the dramatic side of it, and there's also the sort of the the, the commercial considerations too, whether they want a, a, um, a member of the cast to bridge the gap, or do they just want a completely clean slate like they did when um, Matt Smith took over? No, no, no companion crossover. Well, indeed. I mean, Missy, who was a Stephen Moffat creation by and large, uh, Michelle Gomez had gone on record with Radio Times as saying, yes, I'm off at the end of this series. Stephen's leaving, Peter's leaving, yeah. I'm leaving. But then she went back on that later in the oh, week. Really? Yeah, which is something we didn't get to talk about on last week's show. I didn't see that. She hadn't said that. Yeah, she, yeah. she sort of recanted it now. Mm. I don't know whether that's because someone said, hey, you're not meant to be saying that. You know, <laughs> pull, pull your head in. But to me, it makes perfect sense that she would be leaving because she's a Moffat creation. You know, does Chibnall want to play with a Moffat creation or does he want to make his own master? Does he want the master at all? I'm only obviously having not seen that bit, but reacting to exactly to what you're saying there. Maybe it is that Missy gets killed off before the end of the season. When I say killed off, I mean regenerate. But because the BBC will think everyone will leap to that conclusion if she says she's leaving, they've kind of asked her to recant that for that reason, maybe. Mm Mm-hmm. Here's a new theory. She regenerates into Bill's mum. <laughs> you see, this is the sort of thing that, <laughs> that I, I see an awful lot of online and I'm kind of going, I keep shaking my head at it and kind of going, no, 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 please don't. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not saying it won't happen because it might indeed. We've seen this in the past. But, but yeah, I really would. Uh, my, my preference would be for it not to happen. Yeah. For it to just, just, just Bill be the, like, I mean, I, I come back, keep coming back to the touchstone of classic series who, because that's my, my first love is, is that we had ordinary people or relatively ordinary people uh, traveling with the doctor and they didn't suddenly turn out to be some super being or crucial to the, the, you know, everything that's going on. So I just want to, 
I want I want Bill to be that that old school companion. Yeah, no, no, I I agree. Now, quickly, Fashion Watch. This is something I started last week, uh, quite unintentionally when it comes to Bill. I commented on her fashion. Dave wasn't interested at all. But I want to comment (laughs) on her fashion again this week. And this is probably something you won't hear on any other Doctor Who podcast, so bear with me, folks. Bill was wearing a souvenir jacket in this episode, or Sukajan in the Japanese. These go back to World War II. Um, mm-hmm. and, and post-war occupation Japan, the American right. troops were getting jackets made up, often out of parachute material, and they'd get the local Japanese folk to hand-stitch, you know, designs on them like uh, dragons or cherry blossoms or, you know, Japanese characters or whatever, and they'd take them home as or almost as a souvenir of their time in Japan, so they got called souvenir jackets. And they're having a bit of a resurgence because Muse, yeah. Muse recently put out a single and the picture that accompanied it, Muse were walking down the street, and they're all wearing souvenir jackets. And then in this episode, Bill's wearing a souvenir jacket. So I just wanted to give a shout out to the souvenir jacket. They look very cool. And I think Bill is right on top of her fashion. All right. Something that completely passed me by. I wasn't aware of that at all. But thank you for educating me. <laughs> no, that's quite all right. I've, I've got a thing for souvenir jackets. I think I want right. one. Yeah. But uh, yeah. Anyway, Bill, she's the trendiest companion we've had. I, that's all I want to say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she's 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 not wearing clothes that jump out at you as inappropriate in the, in the sense of like she's not wearing Edric's costume or anything that's sort of just just or, or Colin Baker's costume. I'm trying to think of costumes that really don't really fit, and and so therefore your eye is drawn to them when it shouldn't be. If you know what I mean, she's she, she her clothes look look comfortable and, 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 and ordinary and presentable and, 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 and casual. You, you believe in her as a character because you believe in what she's wearing, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Look, the minute we saw her in that Prince T-shirt and the denim jacket, I thought, oh, yeah, this is a companion I can really get behind when it comes to fashion. <laughs> yeah. The other companion, of course, in the episode is Nardol, and I found him less annoying than most of the outings he's been on so far, where he's just sidelined to finger-waggling and saying, you shouldn't do this or you shouldn't do that, I'll kick your ass, whatever. Here, he was pretty good here here i might be deviating from 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 what you're normally discussing on on these these podcasts but i don't mind nardole okay i don't have a problem with him even in finger waggling mode i've listened to your criticisms and 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 i understand them but i i don't agree for my 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 uh reaction to nardole is i'm 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 perfectly relaxed and fine with him i don't i i don't mind the finger wagging i I think it's kind of it's amusing and it's it it doesn't bother me okay Uh, let me put it another way then did you find he was uh at least different in this episode. Yes, I'd agree with that. Yeah, yeah, mm. he was he was more toned down. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it was confirmed that he's still organic in some way. I mean, we've been having this debate like he's sort of robotic. He had to get his body from somewhere. His nuts and bolts fell off in the first episode. <laughs> yeah. Yet he uses the bathroom. He needs oxygen in the oxygen episode, and so on. And here it was definitely confirmed and even shown that he is organic and is affected by bacteria. He seems to be almost like a sort of a Frankenstein's monster type character. Yeah, it rules out that he's chameleon. The, the, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, wasn't chameleon destroyed? Yeah, yeah. he was. <laughs> um, but the, the thing is, he doesn't. He's not even aware he's got secondhand lungs. Yeah, he's not even that aware of what he is himself, and he he says he's he's not human, and the doctor kind of contradicts him on that. So it's kind of like Nardole's not even really that much clued up on what he is. Is Nardole a Cyberman? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wonder if this is something that's going to play out later in the season. Are we getting all these hints about Nardole and there's some big revelation to come, or is it just a, just a, a tease for the sake of a tease? I guess they had to explain the new body somehow. 
But uh, as to whether it's anything, I'm mm, I'm still out to lunch. I think Moffat likes to tease more than anything. Yeah, yeah. But we there is the risk that we might get to the end of the series and it just gets forgotten about, and we never actually know what Nardole was. Wouldn't be the first time. No, <laughs> <laughs> that's why I say it's a risk. Is that all we've got on Nardole? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Okay, yeah. moving on to the Doctor, Peter Capaldi. He's very good, isn't he? Oh, love him. Absolutely love him. You know, even in a bad episode, and I'm not saying this is a bad episode, but even in a bad episode, he rescues it. He's just consistently good. Yeah. Did you expect his blindness to be cured in this episode, or were you thinking it might stick around for the whole three parts? I didn't really know what to think in regards to that. I, I Towards the end of the episode, when he couldn't see the thing, that's when I started to twig. I thought, oh, hold on, they've got to, they've got, they've got to get a way out of this somehow. Yeah, I, I I was interested because I'd read an interview, I think it was with Stephen Moffat, where he mentioned that it was never the plan originally for him to be blind beyond the end of the um, Oxygen episode, that it was going to be resolved at the end of that. Uh-huh. So in the, in the back of my mind, every episode since Oxygen, obviously there's only been two, has been a rewrite to some degree because this is something that they've decided after plotting out the episodes that he he wasn't going to be blind in this episode and he wasn't going to be blind in Extremis that the episodes were rewritten to accommodate the blindness once they decided this was a great idea to keep it on so at some point during the writing process and it may have been really early on I don't know that that decision was made so I'm kind of thinking that there's a version of this episode where he wasn't blind and I'm thinking well how long can you sustain that because it has an impact on every writer's story going forward. So I think I was thinking that it would be sooner rather than later to come around to answering your question that, that they, they would resolve it. So yeah, I wasn't overly surprised that they, they resolved it here. Same here. I thought it was going to be a really clever plot device in extremists. Like everyone who reads this, you know, goes crazy and kills themselves. I thought, aha, he's not going to read it because he's blind. It will be read to right. him or he'll use an electronic reader or something. Sure. But then it turned out that it was more the concept that made people kill themselves, not actually physically seeing the mm. writing. So I thought, oh, although, okay. although didn't 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 he say an extremist? And I've only watched it um, once, but towards the end when he's talking to the monk, still in the simulation, doesn't he say that he has he, he had it read to him by the computer? That's right. The, trans, the translation was read to him. I took that to mean that it, therefore, because he didn't visually see it, that it didn't have the same influence on him, and therefore he was able to resist its influence a bit more. I don't know. Maybe I've, I've misread that. Okay, I took it more to be, and and either could be correct. I took it more to be that you know he's he's used to the concept, or he's he's above the concept of not existing, and he's quite comfortable with the idea that right. he doesn't exist. You know, yeah. whereas a normal human would just be like, oh my god, my whole life has just been you know maybe, maybe. Uh, made up. Yeah. yeah. Okay, now there's there's an elephant in the room that I want to address with the Doctor in this episode, and I don't know your thoughts on this at all. I know what Dave's are, so I'd know how to sort of couch this, but. Paul, the president of the Earth thing reared its head again in this episode. I guess I'll start by asking, what do you think of that concept, which I think first popped up at the end of Capaldi's first series? I'm not enamoured with it. I, I, I prefer the Doctor to be an outsider looking in rather than a member of the establishment. Um, and, and to me, it's just sort of, it's, I don't know, it's unnecessary. Can, can, can they not seek his help without him needing to be their president? Yeah. It just seems like a step too far. 
Yeah, well, look, much much like you in, in my Doctor Who, in quotation marks, the Doctor might be working with Unit, but he's still a shadowy figure, not sort of I'm in charge and you all know me sort of thing. I guess it got explained that it's only in times of crisis. There was a very deliberate line in there, which I thought, OK, I think that's a new thing. I haven't heard that before. So he's not president all the time, which would be weird. You know, does he have to go to meetings? You know, how does this actually work? Yeah. yeah. It's only that when there's a, a crisis. It was the same in the Zygon one, wasn't it? I, I, it's a while since I watched it, but I had a feeling that that, that, was, a, that was also explained in that episode that he would only be like called up when he was needed rather than being the president all the time. Could well be. The, the Zygon story parts of it, I've... I've expunged from my memory even though i quite liked it i just haven't watched it in a long time yes look this concept came up again and and i've got to say it was one of the few few blights on the story for me because it's just a concept i don't like yeah i totally agree with you on that yeah to me it didn't it wasn't essential to the story bringing in the doctor as as an outside advisor would have would have the episode could have played out the same way Mm. And he didn't need to be the president, and and they were very quick. I felt they were very quick to dump him in that from that role too. There's, as soon as he started disagreeing with their intentions, it's kind of oh, you're not our president anymore. Yeah. So what was the point of that in the first place? You know? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Surely the surely the idea of having a president is someone who can overrule you and make make these executive decisions. But if they're not even allowing him to do that, then <laughs> you know mm. what is your point? Exactly. Oh, spe- speaking of president, though, before we go move on from there, did you pick up on that point where um, where where Bill says that the president is orange? Yes, I didn't vote for the orange one or whatever the line was. Yeah, but that, that rankled with me because when we see the president in the simulation, he's obviously not orange. That is so true. The, pre- the, pre- the president in, in, in Doctor Who world, if you like, in the present day, is, is not supposed to be Trump, as I took that to be the case anyway, because the simulation is supposed to be a very accurate mirror of the real world, right? It it is and it isn't insofar well, you think as that's a clue maybe insofar as yes people did see that as a clue the the bigger clue I think people saw was that the TARDIS wasn't translating right and and that was maybe a coding shortcut in the same way that every human being had the same set of random numbers in their head that's why they could sure. say the same set of random numbers it was a shortcut somewhere in the program gotcha. so it, it could be seen as the president not being the same as as a clue. But yeah, just just a, a nice reference to Trump there. I thought I thought it was quite fun. It was a fun reference, yeah. But the, 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 that was my instant reaction to it. I was going, hold on. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so maybe that reference sort of, <laughs> sort of sabotaged itself a little bit. Yeah, no, I, I get where you're coming from. Yeah. I was just going to finish up talking about the the story in these scenes. You know, where we're we're meeting the the head of the Chinese army. Well, perhaps not the head of the Chinese army, but a very important general. Ditto for the Russians and ditto for the Americans. And they're out in a in a desert sort of area. The TARDIS is parked there near the pyramid. Lots of UN vehicles. I thought this looks really good. This they spent some money on this episode. And yet, it's so actually when you actually break it down, it's a very small cast. Yeah, it's 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 like there's only sort of very small groups of, of people. And even when the submarine crew come out of the prison, the the um, pyramid, it's only three people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did notice that. <laughs> yeah, so it kind of does it. I mean, yeah, you say they spent big money going on location, but <laughs> they skimped on the cast, maybe. <laughs> yeah, definitely on the cast. But the the actual look of it, it felt big. It felt good. I I quite liked that. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. yeah. Is there anything else to talk about in terms of the cast or the plot before we move on yeah. to our words of the week? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You mentioned the military leaders there, and they're obviously out on location, and they and they shake hands across the table, right? They do. And and then they go, well, the clock didn't change. Now, yes. why would it? Why would the clock change? Uh, good question. Because they thought that they would bring about their own downfall, perhaps? 
And if they yeah, teamed up, this they is, wouldn't. This is three leaders in isolation from the rest of their entire armies without making any communication whatsoever, shaking hands across the table. I see what so you're saying. So they have not communicated their agreement to anyone at this point. Do you see what I'm saying? I do, actually, They've made yeah. this agreement in a closed room, not observed by anyone. So, so these armies that are theoretically poised at the sort of two or three minutes to doomsday have no way of knowing that this agreement's been reached. And yet they're looking at their, their clocks and going, why hasn't it changed? Maybe it's their own misreading of the situation. Like, if we agree, yeah. it'll change, and they're not thinking it through, perhaps. Mm. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that, that just bugged me. <laughs> no, fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> Any other bugbears before we move on? Oh, gosh. No, let's move on, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, it sounds like you have some bullet points there, Paul. Oh, well, no, but, you know, we've got to leave stuff for our, for our, um, our sports desk, haven't we? Yeah, very true, very <laughs> true. Let's move on to Word of the Week. I'll give you the choice. Do you want to go first, or would you like me to go first? I'll go first. Okie doke. Your Word of the Week again? Reservation. Yes. And by that, I mean I have reservations about what we've been talking about in terms of what's going to be resolved next week and and what is just a loose end. So while we're, we're, we're being critical about this episode and we're assessing this episode, I have reservations about how harshly we should be judging some aspects of it because it may be that next week we'll go, oh, that's what was meant by this. Hmm. So. So, yeah, I, I have that at the back of my mind that maybe maybe we're being too harsh on some things that, that are still yet to play out. Very fair. Very fair. My word was team. And it's because this episode didn't let the side down. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm more delighted with that word than, than any of our listeners will be. But anyway, I had a fear that this might have let the side down. Um Maybe because Harness was involved and, you know, he's written an episode I didn't like. Maybe because it was the middle episode. Maybe because I thought they were, you know, stretching a very long bow. Hey, it's got to pay off. Will it pay off? I don't know. I just had a big fear about this episode, but it really didn't let the side down. The President of Earth thing was in there again, but okay. Aside from that, I was pretty damn happy with the episode. Mm Mm-hmm. Which brings us on to our scores out of 10. I'll go first, because it's probably no surprise that I'll give this a reasonably high mark. I'm going to give it 8.5 out of 10. Last week Mm -hmm. I gave a 9 out of 10, so I liked this almost as much as last week. It just wasn't quite there. Right. For me, me, I'm a bit harsher on this one, and I think this comes down to when I judge episodes, I'm looking at plot logic. That's Mm -hmm. a, that's a, a key factor for me. It's how well it's written. So I'm going to give it a seven. That's that's still all right, though. I think it sounds like you liked it. I did. I did. I just had a lot of issues with some of the plot holes. Mm. All right, then, without any further ado, shall we go over to the sports desk? Sure. Alright, so here we are at the Sports Desk where we talk MVP, Player of the Week and Foul. You've been listening to our episodes, Paul, so I know you're already across this. Indeed. First time I've ever been on Sports Desk, I have to say. <laughs> well, well, welcome. <laughs> I'm having an allergic reaction because I'm, I'm, I'm really not a sports person at all. <laughs> oh no, we'll get you an antihistamine or something. Yeah. We normally start with MVP, so let's, let's start with MVP. Um, I'm happy to go first, unless you've got a really burning MVP you want to get out. You go. You go. All right. My MVP this week is Bill. Um, and I've already alluded to this already, but that scene where she gives up to the uh, 
to the monks and she's doing it to save the doctor's eyesight primarily that love that shines through there it's it's genuinely the first time i've sort of had the the hairs on the back of my neck go up and it's the first time this series i've felt something now i know that might sound (laughs) bizarre and horrible i don't mean it that way at all it's i've enjoyed this series so far quite a bit this was just the first time though that something really moved me and I felt very moved by that scene, and Bill was at the centre of it, and I think, well, it's because of you, Bill. I've got to give it to you. Fair enough. For me, for me, and this might be a very predictable choice, but um, I couldn't really resist it because he, he was just so strong in this episode. It's Peter Capaldi. I just felt he, he just gave such a, a, a brilliant performance. He was just loved his lines. He had some really great, great, great moments in there, and he was just, his delivery was just on point all the time, but I mean, I just love him as an actor. I just adore him. So it's it's hard for me to... An actor really has to be quite exceptional to stand out above Capaldi for me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we can draw MVPs from, from other behind-the-scenes folk as well. We've done that once or twice. Oh, sure, sure. But on the whole, I think between Dave and myself, I don't think a week has gone by where one of us hasn't given it to Capaldi. So I think we're right on board with you there. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm keeping the end up then. <laughs> very good, very good. On to play of the week. Do you want to take lead on this one? Mm, play of the week for me. I love the scene where the Doctor and Nardole are walking around the console and you get the whole 360. Yes. That for me was just, that, 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 that was like, oh, I love this bit. Did you like the line, are you following me? Yeah. <laughs> yes. It was fantastic. I just, the direction on that, the, the performance and the direction and, and the writing and everything all just came together in that scene. And I just felt, yeah, this is really quite neat. It's just a small scene. It's, it's, it's incidental to the episode, but, but I, I thought, yeah, it made me sit up and go, oh, I like this. Hmm. So kudos to the director there, I guess. Yeah. All right. My play of the week is trapping the Doctor by something as mind-numbingly simple as just some tumbling dials. Sure. You know, it, it just shows that traps don't have to be complex. This yeah. trap was absolutely going to kill him, mm-hmm. and it was just some tumbling dials that he couldn't see. And I just thought, that's great. That That is a really nice piece of writing. They haven't tried to make it so complex to try and prove to us that the Doctor couldn't get out of it. They've just used something amazingly simple. <laughs> I loved it. Not not to undermine your choice at all, because I do agree with you, but did did it bother you at all about the, the line about the sonic screwdriver in that scene? You'll have to refresh my memory. Um, he was saying that the sonic screwdriver could read what the combination should be, but that it couldn't open the door, oh. that he had to do that manually. And I kind of felt, that's, that's a bit of a hand wave. Yeah, because I guess it has opened doors of a similar nature in the past. I was, I was kind of mentally running back through my mind of like when a sonic screwdriver has actually operated a, a, a tumbler lock like that. Uh, just going, yeah, that's a bit... <laughs> it, it, to, my, to my mind, if I was the, the writer, I would have contrived for him to have left the sonic screw, forgotten the sonic screwdriver and left it on the lab bench and run in. Yeah. yeah. You know what I'm saying? That's an easier solution to that scene. It could have ratcheted up the tension too. Like he, it could. he's looking around. I know he can't see, but he's looking around, thinking, "Oh, it's over there," and I can't yeah. get to it. It's on the other side of the window. That, that would be, to me, that would be a better solution. To not 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 knocking your choice because it's still a really great scene, but mm. it's just a bit that bugged me about that. Yeah, fair enough. Moving on to foul of the week, I'll go lead here because it's a very quick one, and I've mentioned it a couple of times already. I still don't like the president of the Earth concept. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah. To me, for me, it's the another one we've mentioned. It's 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 the clocks and the watches thing. Yeah, yeah. To me, it, it just it took me out of the episode. 
it just kind of like, no, hold on. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's finish up now with some listener messages, our ARC watch and our fan watch. I've got uh, a few messages here. I'll read the first one. This is from David Clark, who's in the UK and is actually writing to us about the episode we're discussing here. Normally our letters are about the previous week's episode, but here this is fresh. This is totally about the pyramid at the end of the world. David Clark says, hi guys, Dave in the UK here. Just a quick word about tonight's episode. Brilliant. This series so far has been fantastic, and Peter and Pearl both hit the ground running. I would have to give tonight's episode a solid nine. I'm actually quite lucky to live in Wales and have been to the Doctor Who experience. Oh, that's awesome, David. Uh, And have been in the TARDIS used in the show, which you were just mentioning, Paul, that 360-degree prop they've Mm. got. And also have been lucky enough to obtain a screen-used prop that was going to be destroyed, but I have a friend who thought of me. I think it's fair to say I love Doctor Who. Anyway, keep up the good work, guys. I really love your show. And David has sent us, Paul, some pictures of this screen-used prop. It's a TARDIS. (gasps) The ultimate prop. It is. It is. <laughs> Gosh, David, that is awesome. It's in pieces, but that's because these TARDISes are put together, um, you know, on, on set. That's that's amazing. We'll put the picture of this up on our uh, on our Twitter. I've asked David if that's okay, and he said it is. That, that is just an awesome thing to have, isn't it? It is. It is. I am... I'm, I'm, I'm totally green with envy here. <laughs> <laughs> you can send it over any time, David. We'll, uh, <laughs> we've got a good place for it uh, over here. Yeah. Absolutely. We'll fight you for it. <laughs> now, Paul, you've got something from, I think, J.R. Southall. I do indeed. J.R. Has, has sent us a message. And J.R. writes, Just a thought after listening to your extremist review this morning regarding the female pope in the painting, it's possible that it was included as yet another clue or suggestion that this wasn't taking place in the real world. I think that's fair enough. Yeah, like you like you were mentioning, that there may be clues that were dropped into the, to the episode, like, like Trump. Mm-hmm. All these little little bits for people to pick up on repeat viewings, maybe. Yeah. So JR continues, another thing people have been bringing up, and I'm not sure you two did, but I'll leave it here anyway, is it seems implausible that everyone would kill themselves having realized what the truth is. While normally I'd agree, but I'd suggest that it's just a bit of artistic license designed to intrigue the viewer. Maybe there is an explanation after all. Maybe it's part of the program itself that anyone who realizes the truth isn't allowed to continue within it. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm veering in that way. We touched on this earlier about whether, because the doctor didn't read the, the, the book, maybe he had a different reaction to it. That was my reading, on it, and uh, seeing online and, 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 and podcasts such as yours, not everyone seems to have taken the same reading from this, is that I took it to mean that this was part of the code of the program, that as soon as someone learned the truth, that the program... Um, compelled them to kill themselves. Right. It wasn't, it wasn't a choice. Basically, that's what JR's basically saying, and his 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 comment there is that once you as a, as a as a character within the simulation have learned what's going on, the program basically flicks a switch and says you are going to kill yourself, and so there's no choice for the the character to continue. Because otherwise, it's just implausible that everyone would make the same decision to to die. Yeah. The the antivirus comes and cleans you out. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. So it's like a bit of malware, maybe. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So JR continues on. Um, people have also asked where the Veritas actually came from, i.e. who wrote it. A question I'm not sure the episode really answers, or any asks, does it really even need to? Having only watched it once at this point, 
but I'd like to think the Veritas is the computer program and that somebody within the system has accidentally stumbled upon the computer code, which is thereafter representing itself in the form of a book. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, look, I can buy into that. As said, it's not, you know, explicitly said, but yeah, that's as good an explanation as any I've heard, for sure. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with what JR says there. I, uh, that's my take on it, too. Alrighty, moving on, I've got one here from Martin Oates. He uh, tweets at MJPO007, or Beer is the Answer, where he does beer reviews. Great, great, <laughs> great title, that one. <laughs> he says, hello, guys, love the review as ever. Best episode of the season so far, and of course we're talking about last week's episode here, not, not Pyramid at the End of the World. Uh, best episode of the season so far by quite some distance. I was taken in by the curveball thrown at the start, so the reveal was rather good. And yes, a nice little nod to the Doctor Who movie. Paul McGann would have made a great Doctor, in my opinion. This was a multi-layered episode that managed not to tie itself up in knots, thereby working as a standalone episode as well as the start of something big. Bill and Nardole, their best performances to date. It was good they were given screen time together. They worked really well. With regard to the references to the past that were mentioned, I think they worked. For casual viewers, it's just words, and for fans, a bone for us to gnaw on. I was a big fan of Clara and the relationship she had with the Doctor. The only failing was the last two episodes that ultimately saw her not die, but that was down to the script rather than the performance. Keep up the good work. Still loving the hot takes. More so now that I know you are working with each other via Skype. Cheers. P.S. Had a beer from the Wild Beer Co. called, yes, you've guessed it, Veritas. Described <laughs> as a passion fruit New England pale ale. My comments are delicious fruity pale ale with just a hint of funk. Well, thank you, Martin. That's awesome. <laughs> and um, Just briefly, I- I'll pull out one element of that email uh, with regard to Clara... How did you feel about Clara overall, Paul? Did you like her up until her last couple of episodes where she was brought back to life or mixed about her? I'm one of these people who think that it might have been better if Clara had left a season earlier than she did. Yeah. Because we, we all know she was going to she was going to leave and she did a and t was persuaded to stay. Mm. But, um, but yeah, I, her last year to me just felt a bit sort of tacked on. Yeah. So that That colors my opinion of her as a character, I think. Indeed, which is something I was saying at the time, and I think a lot of people are waking up to this series with Bill and realising, oh yeah, we could have been doing this a series ago. Indeed, indeed, that's an interesting prospect, where we might have had two two series of Bill with Capaldi. Yeah, that would have been good, I think. But that, but then, you know, by that reasoning too, it's still the same stories, so would we have not thought so well of Bill if the stories were not quite so good? Because mm. part of the reaction to Bill is that she's been given such good material to work with. Yeah. Right? Because... Yeah. I think the general consensus on this this series, I don't know how you feel about it, Rob, but I, I get the sense that, you, like me, you feel that this is a big step up from Capaldi's previous two years. I do. I do. Yeah. I mean, we've still got half a series to go, but, you know. So um, far. So far, yes, very, very good. Yeah. All right, quickly on to Arc Watch. Uh, for me, it's the return of Missy. I think that's part of the arc. We saw that in the in the trailer. And uh, I thought she would have been in this episode too. I had the feeling that she would have been. Not a single mention of the vault. No, but next week, is that a peek inside the vault we're getting when we see Missy? I'm hoping it is, because I, I want to see inside it. Are, are, we, are we absolutely 100% convinced now that it's Missy inside the vault? Oh, look, you, you sound like John O'Park asking me this. Um... <laughs> no, it's, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not swaying you one way or the other. It's just that people like John O have been bringing it up and saying, are we being misdirected here? So I'm just wondering what your thoughts on it were on it. We, we could be, but all the clues just point so strongly to Missy. 
it's it's hard to see misdirection. Like there's not an ambiguity there. Yeah, we've had the rug pulled out from us under us before by Moffat, though. True, true. Made, we're all meant to think it's mercy, and maybe it's not. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't know. It probably is, and this 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 comment's going to be very dated in a week's time. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else for Ark Watch aside from Missy or the Vault? We, t- we touched on it before, but I think Nardole might be part of the Ark. Okay. Because we keep getting bits about Nardole. Pun intended, I guess. But, <laughs> <laughs> but um, it may be that, that Nardole's, the, the nature of what Nardole is, and I'm not saying he's a Mondasian Cyberman necessarily, but but that could pay out. And, and particularly given that the Mondasian Cybermen are an extension of the whole concept of Frankenstein's monster, they are basically a collection of spare parts that have been bolted together to extend their lives. And the implication is that that's what the Doctor's done to, to Nardole to keep him alive too. But all the little hints we get is that the Doctor's cobbled him back together. So is there going to be some sort of parallel, some sort of metaphor, even some sort of direct connection at the end of the season? And that's what we're building towards with Nardole. Who knows? Maybe mm. none. Mm. No, very good. That's my feeling that might be an important arc point. Okay. Moving on to fan watch, I think the Cyberman thing will continue. I think some of the the hints or the clues or the misdirection, whatever you want to call them in this episode, will get talked about quite a bit uh, by fans. And I also think Bill apparently shooting the Doctor will be a thing that gets discussed quite a bit over the week ahead. Yeah. I, I haven't been looking ahead. I've been trying to be really good, you know what I mean, not doing the whole spoiler thing. But I don't... I mean, there's that line in in, in this week's episode where... The doctor says to Erica, what are you doing when this is all over? And to me, when I watch that, I'm going, she's going to die. Yes, she's Linda with a Y. Because it's, <laughs> it, it just happens. And, and, and the girl whose name temporarily escapes me in the God Complex and, and, and many yeah. other examples, too, where the doctor befriends someone. And he's obviously sizing her up as a potential future colleague, companion, whatever. And then she, by the end of the episode, they're dead. Yeah. And she's not. Erica's still there. So my question is, and it probably simply because I have not looked ahead, might Erica play a part in future episodes? That's that's my question. She's there if they want to pull that playing piece out, but I guess with a new writer, they might think, oh, it's someone else's creation. Exactly. Mm. But but well spotted. Yeah. All right, next week we have The Lie of the Land. This is written by Toby Whithouse. To remind our listeners of him, he's written School Reunion, The Vampires of Venice, The God Complex, which we just mentioned a moment ago, A Town Called Mercy, Under the Lake, and Before the Flood. And, Paul, before you jump in there, I do want to say something. Toby Whithouse, he's like the uh, the Star Trek films for me. You know how they do a good one, then a bad one, or is it a bad one, then a good one? Yeah. Um, for me, School Reunion is brilliant. Vampires of Venice isn't. God Complex is brilliant. Town Called Mercy isn't. Under the Lake is brilliant, Before the Flood wasn't that good. So we're actually up to his good episode in terms of the way I look at his output. Um, we're actually up to his bad one, aren't we? Well, I'm taking Under the Under the Lake and Before the Flood to be two different things. Oh, are you? Right, okay, yeah. right. So you're saying Before the Flood was not a good episode. Is that your, your take on it? I think Under the Lake was far superior to Before the Flood, so I'm, I'm, I'm pushing that into negative territory, right. hoping that this uh, one we're going to get next week not, is a good one. I'm afraid I tend not to grab you, Rob. I think both parts of that story were pretty damn good. True, true. They, they were good. The first part <laughs> which, which was makes- better. <laughs> So I, I tend to agree with you on your, your central thesis of the, of, of the on-off thing, but I do tend to regard that Under the Lake Before the Flood as one story, and therefore I, I'm, I'm nervous about next week if you follow me. Oh, no, I've just I've given you the, the shakes. <laughs> oh, yeah, you have indeed, yeah. Now I'm totally, like, I'm totally on the wrong foot for next week now. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> 
Well, I think it might be time for us to uh, to get going. Be sure to look out on our feed for our big monthly episode, which is already on the feed as we speak, where Mike Solko and I take a look at Season 27, Big Finish style. Also, check out our You and Who Talking episodes that I do with J.R. Southall. There are nine of them out now. We've dropped another one this weekend. And I guess all that's left for me to say is thank you so much for joining us this week, Paul. I think we'll have you back next week to uh, finish off this tale, if you're up for it. I think that'd be entirely appropriate for me to come back and we'll, we'll see if we can tie up some of the ends from this week. All right, until then, I've been Rob. And I've been Paul. We'll see you next time. Bye. You've been listening to The Doctor Who Show, the podcast where too much Doctor Who is barely enough. Subscribe to us on iTunes or listen through the website at www.thedwshow.net. Write to us at hello at thedwshow.net or send us a quickie on Twitter at thedwshow. Facebook.com forward slash thedwshow is also a good place to find us if you're so inclined. Our version of the Doctor Who theme arranged by George Locke. Look him up on YouTube, folks. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Doctor Who, all names and sounds, and any other related items are trademarks and or copyrights of the BBC. All other trademarks and trade names are properties of their respective owners. The official Doctor Who website can be found at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash Doctor Who.